Well, welcome to Eastlake. If you are a first-time guest, you're probably going, what in the world did I just walk myself into? They were talking about whims uteruses before the pastor's even on the stage. We're glad you're here. We're in part four of a series of calling. It's complicated. It's been a series on relationships, and uh, you are walking in at the end of a series, so it's kind of like walking at the end of a movie. There may be some parts of it that I'm going to jump through some assumptions on. Uh, if that's the case, and you're like, I wish I would knew more, um, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. If you go there, there's like video messages. There, uh, there's a link to the iTunes podcast thing. You can catch up with us or re-listen to this one or do whatever uh, you want in that way. By the way, since it is part four, we've been talking about this for three weeks, and I'm going to talk about it for another like 25, 30 minutes here. If your relationships are still complicated after today's talk, I cannot help you anymore, Okay. <laughs> You are too far gone. So that's, I'm just kidding. But uh, we, we did recognize this, that um, relationships, just interpersonal relationships are hard. And then when you add like this whole like romantic side into, into things, and when you establish some sort of a long-term commitment, whether through marriage or just we've just been together for a long time, it gets even more difficult. It's really, it's really complicated. And it's not just a tag on Facebook for like our status. It's like real life for us that, that things can get incredibly complicated. And so we took an approach to saying, how can we disentangle ourselves from that for a moment to be able to talk about uh, relationships uh, when it comes to, from like a biblical perspective, there's not like a ton of Bible verses on dating. There's none on dating. There's a few on marriage more descriptive than, than anything else. Uh, and then Paul had some advice in Ephesians chapter five, but essentially what we, we said is um, it's important to understand that every person comes into every single relationship with the hopes, dreams, and desires of what I want to get out of this relationship and what, how I want this to benefit me, right? I feel like dating you can help achieve some of these hopes, dreams, and desires because I've always wanted a cute wife and I've always wanted a handsome husband and I've always wanted somebody who works hard and, and those hopes, dreams, and, ex and, and desires don't feel like hope, streams, and desires to the other person. They feel like expectations. Um, I, I need this from you. I need you to make this thing for me. And that can go haywire real fast. And so we have, uh, we, we've been talking through dealing with some of those dynamics. And today, um, I want to talk about this idea of a choice. I titled the talk, uh, Make the Choice. We all enter into relationships and we have a choice. Happy couples know they have a choice. Sometimes it's not going to feel like a choice. It feels like a reaction, and it feels like this is just how you do things when these types of things happen, okay? It's going to feel like, well, I, I, never, I never decided this. But I'm going to say, yeah, you did, though. You just, it's, it feels like a reaction, but it's not. And then lastly, uh, and also, sometimes it won't feel like you have a choice, it won't feel like a choice, and then there'll, there'll be times where it comes up so often, it feels like I don't have a choice, this is what I have to do, but you do have a choice. Uh, and uh, it may be the single most important decision that you'll make when it comes to relationships. So uh, this is a, the last thing we're going to talk about in terms of what happy couples know. And the passage that we're going to look at today comes from uh, 1 Corinthians which is a letter, basically. So the book is not a, the Bible's not a book, it's a collection of books, right? And there's letters and there's, there's gospel writings, which are basically like historical accounts of the person and teaching of Jesus. There's all kinds of Old Testament documents, some of them law, some of them poetry, some of them wisdom books. Uh, and then a lot of the New Testament is com uh, comprised of letters that uh, pastors or, or religious leaders of that day wrote to different churches along the way. Some of them uh, come from Peter, uh, some of them come from James, the disciples of Jesus. 
One of them comes from a guy named Paul, or not one of them. A lot of our New Testament letters come from a guy named Paul. And this is one of them. And he wrote it to a church in Corinth. He wrote a, a combination of letters over time. In fact, we know that because in the first letter, he brings up some issues. And then in the second letter, he says, based on my previous letter. Um, and so we know that there's like a, a pattern in which he did this. And he probably wrote another letter, but that one got lost in antiquity. So we, we have first and second Corinthians letters to churches addressing specific issues in their culture and in how they're operating as a church. And to, in order to understand what they're talking about, you need to know a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was a really popular uh, metropolitan city. It was a crossroads of sorts. If you wanted to get from one side of Greece to the other, you cross through this area. Um, and so it it was a major crossing point, major stopping point. Uh, it was very wealthy, and it was very, um, very loose when it comes to morals and sexuality and all kinds of. Pretty much everything goes in Corinth. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Is basically the, the message of what was what was taking place in this sort of city. And so it's a unique place to be able to do a church. And Paul knew that, so he writes to them, and. We're going to jump into chapter 13, but prior to this, you need to understand that in his argument leading up to this spot, he has been speaking to a Gentile audience, which means non-Jewish audience, and he's addressing and he's challenging everything that they know about the system of the gods that they're used to. He's speaking to people who are coming out of a religious pagan system of gods, which basically means there are temples everywhere. Uh, the gods exist in this alternate universe, uh, and yet they have an impact on our universe, and it's completely one-sided. They are not for us. They do not like us. We must do everything we can to appease the gods because they're the ones that provide the sunlight and the rain and all of the different things that make our life better. And, and, and so um, it was a completely, completely vertical relationship, meaning it's us and them and us and them, and they did didn't really love, they don't love people. People were manufactured to be workers for them. And so it didn't matter how you treated other people. The gods would not be concerned about that. What they would be concerned about is what have you done for me lately? So here we bring our first fruits and everything that we, uh, here's our first grain that we, you know, just produced or our fruit, our first fruits that we just picked or, um, all, all up to and including in some religions, our firstborn child, everything was like the first of everything. We offer it to you as a way of saying, thank you. And please, continue to bless us in this way. That was how that kind of system operated. And Paul comes on the scene and he begins to talk about how there's, okay, I'm introducing a brand new sort of religion in which there is not many gods, but there's one God. It's like polytheism is poly, which means many um, versus monotheism, one God. I'm, 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 I'm introducing this idea of one God. And this one God is different than all of the different gods that you supposedly believe in. He is not angry with you. You do not have to do anything to appease him, but he is interested in how you treat other people, which was a completely foreign concept for them. For them, everything was about the one-way vertical relationship with the gods. Paul comes on the scene and begins to talk about how God loves his people, right? God is not apathetic to, towards their existence. He did not create them out of anger or in, in, in a way to kind of perform the work for them, to be able to, to feed him and do all these things. God created people to be out of love. He loves them. And just in the same way that you treat your friend's kids with like love and respect out of honor and respect for your friend, when you treat the people that God created with love, in a sense, in a sense you are treating his children with love, which therefore he likes. Paul introduces a morality amongst others 
a horizontal sacrifice. They were very familiar with vertical sacrifice. I do this for the gods. Paul says this God is different. He appreciates a horizontal sacrifice. What you do for others affects how he treats you or or his love for you or he wants you he's very pleased when you treat others with the honor the dignity and the respect that they deserve being made in his image so this is a kind of a brand new concept so then he's going to develop this further in a really really famous chapter called uh, the, the the 13th chapter of, of corinthians and the reason it might be familiar for you, with you is because some of you had this in your wedding this is the love chapter this is first corinthians 13 it's like a poem about love or they call it a hymn of love and it's really really famous in fact it's almost too famous because every once in a while i'll go through premarital counseling with a couple and we'll be talking about what do you want in your ceremony your wedding ceremony and they'll be like anything but first corinthians 13 we don't want that that is so cliche like our parents had that our grandparents had that if brent if you could like drum up a different bible we love the we love the flow of it, and we love the, the message of it, but we don't want that one because we're too hipster, and we don't want to do things anybody else has already done. So if you could find us a new Bible verse that would be, you know, like, I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to help you with this. So let's just move. Let's just find a quote from somebody that you like, you know, and we'll move on. Is there an Oprah quote you like? Can we just include that or something? So anyways, uh, that, this, is, this is the chapter. So it is de- dealing with romantic love, or that is an angle at which to take it, but it also just deals with people in general. Like we, we isolate it into romantic love, but it means so much more. It meant so much more. It was his way of showing and proving to these people it's more than just a vertical relationship with God. God it desires horizontal sacrifice, horizontal love for others. He is blessed by that when you do that. So verse, thir- uh, verse one of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men, of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, he's, we, this makes sense for us just reading it at face value, but what we don't understand is many of them are coming out of a pagan religion, worshiping the God of Dion, uh, uh, worshiping, I can't, I'm not going to say his name right, so I'm not going to say it, but uh, worshiping a God who in that sort of religion, there was like this ecstatic language that you would be able to produce that would be speaking the language of the gods, or for them, it was a very religious experience to be able to speak in other tongues or do, in, in, maybe you grew up in a church or you went to a church like that one time. Somebody invited you you showed up and they were all doing some stuff and you're like i need to leave this is this is not this is not for me so and that's fine right i I get that i understand that and this is what paul is saying too listen if you if, if if for you a religious experience is doing this whole tongues speaking in tongues speaking in different languages whatever okay that's fine i'll he's like i'll even grant you the grace for that but don't kid yourself if you're able to do that but you do not love one another you are a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, verse 2, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, first and foremost, we think of prophecy a lot of times as um, like this foreknowledge of things that have not occurred and yet they're coming. Um, that's not really what he's talking about here. He's not concerned about who's going to win March Madness or the next Super Bowl or whatever. Prophecy in this moment was speaking with authority to the current context and situations that people find themselves in. Prophets would be the voice uh, piece of God for that generation. Here's what God says what you need to do. And they spoke with such authority. People were like, all right, we got to go do this. That if you have the ability to speak publicly, I mean, that's basically what's going on here. If you can speak with authority publicly, um, so even in a position like mine, like when you come up, when, when you hear me speak, this is, this is prophecy in, in a certain way and can fathom all the mysteries and knowledge. Or if, if you think you know everything 
If you're the smartest person in the room, especially when it comes to religious stuff, if there was a religious test, you would pass every time. If there was a quiz, you'd probably win. The smart, smarter people than you in terms of a theological level, or if they have amazing faith that can move mountains. He's bringing this, this image in uh, of, uh, of this great, great faith. And, and if you have that, but you don't have love, he says, I am nothing. Or another, trans- another way of reading it would be, I am a nobody. If I think that I'm somebody, because I have the ability, I have the talents to be able to speak, or if I, if, I, if I think that I'm somebody because I, I know more than you, or if I, if I think I'm somebody because I have such great faith, like you see these people and you're like, I just want that kind of faith, and yet they lack love, don't judge them based on their talents or their abilities. Base, them, base, their love, base, or, uh, base your perception on them of do they love well? Yeah, he's a great speaker. Yeah, he's a great knowledge. Yes, he knows so much but it falls apart and he loses so much credibility because of the relationship that he has with other people and his kids and his wife or his husband or her husband or whatever. It's so difficult for us to manage that peace. We don't get it. We don't understand it. How, what, how is that disconnect possible? Paul's saying, you're right. That disconnect should not be there. That person, if if that was me, I'd be a nobody. You shouldn't listen to me. He goes on. If I give all that I possess to the poor, If I give everything I have to the poor and give over my body to hardship, which is basically like become a martyr for the things that I believe, going as far as giving things away or sacrificing my physical self towards something that I believe in that I may boast, but do not have love. You can do the extreme nature of this. And yet if you still lack love, I gain nothing. Or another way of saying this is anybody who gives to get gets nothing from God. I gain nothing. So then the question immediately that comes to my mind as a result of all of this is what does he mean have love? If I have, if I can do all these things, but I don't have love, if I can be really, really smart or really, really talented or really, really this, or appear as if I'm really, really spiritual, but I lack love, I have Nothing. What does it mean to not have love? What, it is, what does it mean to have love? Is it an emotional? It feels, it feels at this point a little bit internal. Like have love is like this. I have an affinity towards other people. If I feel really compassionate towards other, when I hear about other people going through hardship, my heart goes out to them. Um, or I, I, I feel conviction, or I watch a video of people in a third world developing country, and I feel guilty about the life that I live, and I begin to you know, be like, you know what, I'm gonna do something different. I have love or kindness, or I'm not angry or bitter towards anybody else, but it's all internal. Paul like anticipates this internalizing of this and says, hold on, let me, let me go further and talk about what I mean when I think of, or when I say the words, have love, because I'm talking about what you do, right? Verse four, love is patient. And that word really relates to interpersonal patience, patience with people, not patience with circumstances. It's not like I waited 30 minutes for Uber Eats to get to my house. I'm such a patient person. Like they anticipated it was only 15, but I, you know what? I still tipped. I, that's how generous I'm so, no, no, no. This is the person who is annoying to you that everything within you, when you see their car in the parking lot, wants to go through the side door so you don't have to meet them. 
or, or walk around the other way, or if they're at the... They're like the little water cooler at work or whatever, and you just, you, you know what? I'm going to go to the other bathroom down the other hall because I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to, I, I don't have patience to deal with this today. Love is patient. Love is kind. That word kind means to defer to them. It's kind. It's, we both have equal access to this, but I'm going to defer to you. I'm going to choose to allow you. This is, um, we, we said in week two of this series, that mutual submission is a race to the back of the line for the other person. I, I'm going to choose to, to race to the back of the line and put you first and do your hopes, dreams, and desires above my hopes, dreams, and desires. I defer myself to you. It does not envy. Envy is I want what you have, or also I can't get what you have, so I just don't want you to have it, okay? Okay. Um, I don't like the fact that you're the life of the party. I don't want to be the life of the party, but what I really want is just for both of us tonight. I, I don't have the personality for it, but I don't like it that you have it. So I would like for you not to be the life of the party. It does not envy. It does not boast, and it is not proud. Boasting is I'm going to let the, all the attention stay on you. And I'm not going to interrupt your story with my story, which is a better story. Here's your story. Oh, that's really good. Here's mine. Is it mine better? Yeah, it is. I'm choosing not to participate in that way. Verse 5, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. We've talked about this already in, in this uh, uh, series as well, because we said that, listen, when you come into things with your hopes, dreams, and desires, and the other person does as well, eventually there's going to be some give where one of us is going to have to give, and it, we, we both can't have the same thing. Uh, we both can't desire to travel, but then also be heavily rooted at home. We both can't, I want four kids, I want no kids, right? Um, those are things that you probably got to pick one or the other. We're going to go this route. And so you begin to like compromise. Um, you, you begin the path of compromise. Which means, well, we'll do it your way this time, and that, which means we'll do it my way next time. And that becomes a uh, imaginary scorecard score or scorebook or whatever. We always track who gave in last time so that we can make sure that we went to your parents for the holidays last time. So definitely this time it's my time. That's only fair. It's only fair. We are keeping track of all of these things. It keeps no record of wrongs. Verse six, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We'll come back to that one in just a minute. And then he kind of gives this like staccatoed information, like this, this big finale of this thought. It's not the end of the chapter, the, 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 the hymn or song or whatever, but it's a big part where he's like, boom, 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 boom. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It sounds like a Winston Churchill speech is actually what it sounds like, right? Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And these are all really, really great things, but there's one of them specifically that I think Paul brings up. And this is the, I mentioned earlier, there's a choice that doesn't really feel like a choice, but it is a choice. And sometimes you don't feel like you have a choice. This is the part that I'm talking about. This is what he introduces right here always trusts, which basically means this. When you choose to love, you choose to believe everything. I'm choosing to believe the most generous explanation for why I didn't, for why uh, this didn't happen the way that I want, that I expected it to. In other words, um, in every single relationship in life, as well as any long-term relation that you may have, romantic or otherwise, there will be a gap between what you expect and what you experience. I expected him to be home at five. 
Um, I expected her to have this, these, these things figured out in terms of our vacation. She's going to do the planning on it. I expected uh, uh, there to be uh, like these the certain things done when I get home or when, when, when we're there. Or I, I expected her, him to come up with the, uh, with the date night plan. It's his turn. This is his Valentine's Day. We, we go back and forth, and this is his time. Uh, I expected uh, this to, to, to take place in terms of there's some boundary issues going on with the parents, the external family members. We got to, to talk about that. So I expect, I expect, I expect, and here's what I got. And this is very, very different because this looks nothing like this. And there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience. And what is it that you put in that gap? What do you choose? Again, you choose. This is the choice that you make. You choose to put something in that gap every single time. You can either believe the best about them. Well, the reason that they're late is probably because something came up that was uh, an undeniable good reason. Like when I hear about it, I'll be like, you know what? That is a good reason. That's a great reason for you to be gone. I believe the best or I assume the worst. She's going to go off. She's got a prescription to go pick up. She's going to leave me with the kid. And, I'm, and it's been now 45 minutes, an hour, and, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Was there a line at the thing? Was there this? I can either choose to believe the best. You know what? It's probably Walgreens' fault. It probably was. Or I can assume the worst. She probably went to coffee. She probably went through the drive-thru. No, she didn't even go through the drive-thru. She probably went inside. She probably brought a book along with her. And I'm here with the screaming kid who... Is not getting any action out of these things. You know what I mean? So he's frustrated. As you probably figured out, this is a recent activity. All right? (laughs) You can either assume the worst or believe the best about that person. What do you place in the gap? Now, you probably know where I'm going with this, but happy couples choose to believe the best. Always. I'm going to choose to believe the best. I'm going to choose to fill that gap. And, and I know that sometimes it's not going to feel like a choice. It, a lot of times it feels like uh, I didn't choose to assume the worst. I never chose that. Yeah, but you, but you did, right? You, you choose to, and, and sometimes it feels like, well, this has become such a pattern. What other option did I have? I'm not assuming the worst. This is just who she is or who he is. This is so like them. This is so like them. That feels reactionary, but really it's a choice. Now, there was a social experiment performed by a guy named Marcus Buckingham. He's a writer, business writer, actually. He wrote, uh, first discover your strengths, now uh, go do something else. And it was a strength-based stuff. It was really popular a few years ago. He wrote a book called The One Thing You Need to Know. And they did a social experiment with people um, uh, who had been married over 20 years or 25 years or something like that. It was a, long, a long-term a long relationship thing. And what they wanted to figure out was how do... Uh, at what point do successful couples, what do they say about the other? Like at some, our hypothesis is that they've stayed together because over time, one person has downgraded their expectations about the other person. They can't meet the needs all the time, right? There's always going to be a gap between what they expect and what they experience. And over time, we think our hypothesis is that people who stayed together for 30 years or longer have figured out that the only way to do this successfully is to lower our expectations for our spouse. Well, you know what? That's just who he is. I've just learned over time that George always does, you know, that's, the, they, that's what they figured out. 
Now, they did the social experiment, and the results came back, and it came back with a different thing than what they hypothesized. The results were this. Happy couples rated their partner higher than what their partner even gave themselves. They said they are more generous, they are more kind, they are more on time than the person goes, than, than they even rated themselves. They had an unrealistic positive view of the person that they were with, which reinforced the social, social cliche that love is blind, right? That we believe the best things about our spouse even when they're not true. And everybody goes, but look at the evidence. Oh, you know what? I just give them the benefit of the doubt. I just believe the best about them. And so the recommendation out of that study, and it was reflecting on managers and employees. It wasn't a book on marriage at all. But considering their source material and who they you know, worked with in this way, the recommendation was find the most generous explanation for each other's behavior and then believe it. And that last part is the hardest part, right? Because any of us can come up with a generous explanation as to why I didn't get what I expected, and I'm experiencing something different, it's come up with the most generous explanation ever and then find a way to believe it. Now, this feels awfully positive, Brent, to the point that it's unrealistic. It feels utopian, which basically means that sounds nice, but that doesn't fit the real world. That's not how the real world operates. In fact, you've seen people who are so optimistic that it's almost like they're blind to the reality and you feel bad for them. You don't think, man, I'd like to be like them. You think, man, they have a really jaded look in a positive way, but still jaded about reality. And one of my favorite SNL characters um, lives that out. Check this out. It's the holiday season. And I, for one, have not been feeling the holiday spirit. Here with his thoughts on the holidays is the most positive guy I know, my neighbor, Willie. Hey! Hey! Joy to the world, everybody! Don't you feel the spirit, Michael? It's the most wonderful time of the year. I honestly don't, Willie. It's cold out, everything is crowded. Oh, I mean... but Michael, life is good. And you gotta appreciate it, because like the doctors always say, I don't know what that is, Willie, but it's spreading. <laughs> Your doctor said that? Are you okay, man? Hey, I'm better than okay. I'm all right. Sure, things aren't perfect. Money's a little tight. But things can always be worse. It's like my daddy always told me. Son, things just got worse. <laughs> and you know, he was always right. That sounds horrible, man. Look. I may not be the richest man. I may not have grown up with Hollywood luxuries like limousines or matching shoes or kidneys. <laughs> but it's like my pastor always says, you can't sleep here, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> you can't sleep here, Willie. <laughs> That's so great. This is what it kind of feels like for some of you. When I said, hey, you know, try this out. Believe the most generous explanation about your spouse. You'd be like, ah, dude. I mean, that feels like that. Like, you look at Willie and you think, that's funny because it's so unlike reality for me. Like, I, I can't get there, nor would I even think that I want to get there. I kind of enjoy, I, would, I wouldn't say enjoy, but I, I, I'm too concerned with reality and how it actually is to believe the best without assuming the worst all the time. 
But you need to know that every time there's a gap, you and every time there's a gap, you decide to put in place something. You decide that. That's a decision that you make. Now, there are a couple of obstacles, and you'd be able to be like, okay, well, if I was going to try and do this, right, um, uh, what, what are some of the hurdles that you're going to have to overcome? Number one is this, what you experience, because there's going to be some of you who would say, he did it again, he does it again, she does it again. It's a pattern, Brent. It happens all the time. You don't understand if I choose to do this. It's like I'm, it's like I'm uh, enabling him or enabling her to continue to, to take advantage of the situation or me or whatever. And, and I'm just, I get it. I understand. And number two is who we are. And that what I mean by who we are is we all come into every relationship with some sort of a baggage, our personal history, things that have happened to us. Uh, we, we will experience things and certain behaviors operate as triggers for us based on things that have happened to us in our history, like negative things, wounds that we've had since childhood that we've never really dealt with, some of that we're aware of, some of them that we're not even aware of. And so these are two legitimate obstacles for us to be able to be like, all right, I'm going to choose then to, to be you know, generous in my explanation and give them the benefit of the doubt or give her the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to choose to believe the best instead of assuming the worst. But, but that's just, I've been hurt too many times and there are things that I cannot explain about myself. I understand. I get that. I'm just, I think what Paul is trying to illustrate here when it comes to this idea of love is you're making a choice every single time. You need to be aware that that's the choice that you're making then. You're choosing then to believe the worst. And consider the alternative, right? The alternative or the opposite of trust is suspicion. I either trust you or I suspect that something's going on. I suspect that you're not really in it for me. I suspect that you're in it for yourself, that it's all about a, a power trip or an ego grab for you, or um, you don't care about my hopes, dreams, and desires. Suspicion, suspicion, by the way, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you fill that gap with suspicion, eventually you find what you're looking for, whether it really is true or not. When you're in a relationship that's characterized by low trust, you are on pins and needles the entire time, and you will appear like you're up to something, even when you're not. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Let's go back to verse 6 of, of 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Knowing what we know about filling the gap with assuming the best or, or believing the best about it instead of assuming the worst. What, what does this mean? What is, what is love? How does this play out? Another way of reading it could be like this. Love isn't trying to catch the other person doing something wrong. We kind of do that sometimes, don't we? We want, to, we want to assume the worst, and so then we dig a little further, and we try and find reasons and hidden motives for why you operate in that way. And we begin to ask around, and then all of a sudden there's something that's questionable, and we'd be like, yep, see, fully justified, fully justified to believe this way. Just know it's your choice every single time. And love, according to Paul, the sacrificial love, the kind of horizontal love that he's calling us to engage in on an interpersonal basis, but also in the context of marriage relationships, is choosing a generous explanation. So based on your personality, based on your experience, based on who you are, what you've been through, what he's been like, what she's been like over any length of time, do you still choose to believe the best? Or... Do you choose or do you find yourself choosing option number two or what's behind door number two? I came up with a couple other options for you. Is it characterized more like this? 
I delight in uncovering mistakes. I actually delight in the fact that he makes mistakes in that way. I thrive on speculation. I assume the worst, and I embrace doubt. Those are your other options. Instead of choosing the best, you'd be like, no, I'm going to choose this. Have you ever heard this in a best man speech at a wedding rehearsal dinner? Uh, cannot wait for you guys to assume the worst about each other and embrace the doubt and thrive on the speculation because Lord knows there's a lot of it when it comes to him. Best friends with this guy for 10 years, right? He's sitting there like, ah, what are you doing? You're killing me here. I mean, that's your option. You, but do you really want that? That's the alternative. But that's no way to live. Now, I know in a message like this, we always jump to the extreme. We always jump to, but Brent, if I always believe the best, aren't I just turning a blind eye? Aren't I enabling him? And, and isn't that really a lack of healthy boundaries that I keep getting taken advantage of? Listen, all I'm saying is that there is a period of time where you don't have all the information. When you have all the, the information, then you should make a judgment call that is based on if is he, I mean, genuinely people do bad, stupid things and genuinely people aren't in relationships for the right reasons. You should make adjustments accordingly. But what I'm saying is there is a period of time in which all of the information is not there. You have a choice in that period of time to place trust in there or suspicion, to believe the best about somebody or assume the worst. And happy couples lead with trust every single time. And they recognize this is a choice. This is a choice. This is a choice. And when I'm tempted to think the opposite and when I'm tempted to go the other direction, I'm choosing that. I'm choosing suspicion. I'm choosing doubt. I'm embracing speculation. I'm hoping they fail. I'm kind of hoping I find somebody else's number on this phone. I'm kind of hoping I do this because then I can be like, ah, I was right. You were wrong. That, my friends, is not love. <laughs> That's not love. Paul says there is a better, more fulfilling way of doing it. If, if the goal is love, there's a better way of doing it. What do you do when there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience? Happy couples know you choose to believe the best. You choose trust every single time, every single time. So my homework for you is simple. Uh, I want you to try it for a week. From March 4th to March 11th. On March 12th, believe the worst. Go for it. I don't care. <laughs> but for one week, would you, with me, attempt to believe the best when we are presented with information that doesn't match up to what we expected? When we are presented in that small period of time where we don't get what we thought we were going to get and go, I'm sure it was something else. I'm sure, I'm sure something came up that it's a completely legitimate reason. And you don't even have to explain it to me. I'm not even... I'm just choosing to believe it and see what that kind of relationship, what, what that does to your relationship. Father, first and foremost, we ask uh, that you would uh, grant us the grace to be able to practice this in our interpersonal relationships. And we are so incredibly thankful uh, for the fact that you have operated like this with us uh, forever. Since uh, this is how you've always treated us and always dealt with us. And then we somehow uh, are, find ourselves not really reflecting this 
in, uh, in the lives and the relationship that we have with other people. And so we apologize for that. We pray that you would help grow us to be more trusting, to be more people who believe the best and not assume the worst when the information is scattered and, and really unclear. And uh, thank you for the grace that has been extended to us. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our personal relationships and the courage to act it out, even when that decision is going to be difficult and really trying and difficult. In your name, amen.